BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. Freedom of speech and diversity of thought used to be acknowledged generally as a virtue in a free society. We debate in the marketplace of ideas, and the hallmark of true freedom is the ability to have personal autonomy and exercise individual rights without unreasonable infringement from the government. But this virtue is premised on the foundation of a shared value system. What is defined as virtuous must be in common. We have our first freedoms because we understand our rights to be God-given, not given through consent of our government. We often talk about the importance of freedom of speech in the First Amendment, but what isn't often discussed is this simple truth. We don't actually even need a First Amendment for the government to have to protect our rights. One of the most common misconceptions about the U.S. Constitution is that it grants rights to individuals. This myth is perpetuated by an overreaching government and a government that purposefully ignores the constitutional design, and also by activist judges. Many court opinions today proceed from the premise that if government, through the Constitution, textually grants rights, then the government can likewise take them away. But this is precisely what the Bill of Rights expressly forbids. There is a difference between rights and privileges. Rights, as the founders recognized in the Declaration of Independence, are unalienable aspects of our humanity that set human beings apart from all other beings. Our rights cannot be sold, bought, abridged, or otherwise infringed at government's whim. The Declaration acknowledges that our rights are endowed by God our Creator, not God our government. This means that our rights pre-exist any government system. Privileges, on the other hand, are a special kind of advantage, entitlement, or protection, typically granted to an individual person or discrete group by their government. That means that privileges may change. Unlike unalienable rights, privileges may be given or taken away by the government in accordance with the rule of law established and in accordance with the government's sole responsibility, preserving and protecting our rights that pre-exist government. This is a very important distinction, because if we frame our rights as merely coming from the Constitution and the government, and essentially misunderstanding our rights as mere privileges, our rights cease to be protected as unalienable because we've allowed our government to act as if our rights are only privileges that can be changed or canceled at whim. We have to understand our First Amendment in the correct and truthful context, The Bill of Rights, which I prefer to call the Bill of Protections, enumerates, but importantly does not grant, specific rights that civil governments most often infringe and abridge. In this way, the first 10 amendments act as a redundancy safeguard in our constitutional system. Just in case our government isn't clear on its very limited powers listed in the Constitution, 
our founders specifically told Congress what it cannot do. But today, the Bill of Rights is the pretext for most misunderstanding of government powers. For example, most people today would say that we have a quote-unquote First Amendment right to freedom of speech or free exercise of religion. But that's not precisely correct. You and I have a pre-existing unalienable right to freedom of speech that is God-given, and the First Amendment is designed to preserve and protect that right. That's a subtle but very key distinction. The Bill of Rights states that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, not that the government grants people the privilege of freedom of speech, which can be canceled at any time. This is the unique beauty of our Constitution, built on the recognition of truth in our Declaration. That our rights cannot be defined as government-given was exactly the concern that Alexander Hamilton expressed in Federalist Number 84, arguing that bills of rights would be an unnecessary redundancy and possibly even dangerous because, as he put it, they would contain various exceptions to powers not granted, and on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall be done which there is no power to do? Hamilton went on to argue, why, for instance, should it be said that the liberty of the press shall not be restrained, when no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed. I will not contend that such a provision would confer a regulating power, but it is evident that it would furnish for men disposed to usurp a plausible pretense for claiming that power. They might urge with a semblance of reason that the Constitution ought not to be charged with the absurdity of providing against the abuse of authority which was not given, and that, that the provision against restraining the liberty of the press afforded a clear implication that the power to prescribe proper regulations concerning it was intended to be vested in the national government. This may serve as a specimen of the numerous handles by which would be given to the doctrine of constructive powers by the indulgence of an injudicious zeal for bills of rights. Furthermore, Hamilton rightly recognized that under our American constitutional system, and this is in Federalist 84, quote, the people surrender nothing as they retain everything. They have no need of particular preservations. We, the people of the United States, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our prosperity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Here is a better recognition of popular rights. Hamilton is absolutely correct to say that we, the people in our system of government, have not given up any of our unalienable rights. Rather, under our consent, we give some limited powers to government to operate. Our right, for example, to freedom of speech remains securely part of our humanity, regardless of whether or not we even had a First Amendment. Ultimately, Hamilton's concern has remarkably foreshadowed exactly how government has abused and abridged our rights, and we have seen our rights so obfuscated and so painfully narrowed by activist courts and an overreaching Congress and presidential administrations. We have to dispel the constitutional myth to fight, cancel culture, and to continue exercising our freedoms. Our shared valued system recognizes that we have pre-existing political rights, not mere privileges. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And joining me now on Just the Truth is everyone's favorite CEO from the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I have been a huge fan of the Bee for a long time, and you guys have just exploded in the last few years of this remarkable satire that is just so accurate. So, uh, so thanks again for joining me. And I think everyone wants to know, how did you get here? What's the history of the Bee? Well, the Bee started back in 2016, so we just had our fifth uh, birthday back uh, just this month, at the start of this month. Um, so it feels like we've been around forever, but we're pretty new operation. Um, and it really started because Adam Ford, the founder of the Babylon Bee, saw that there was this very large void um, right of center for comedy that wasn't cheesy, that dealt with really serious issues, spoke truth to culture, and did it from like a Christian conservative perspective. So there wasn't really anybody doing that. And um, there aren't actually many people doing it now, even now. So we're, we really kind of have um, a, a huge kind of car, mark, carved out market for ourselves uh, where we're doing satire from that perspective. Uh, and I think people were just really hungry for, for humor and comedy that came at the issues from that angle. So um, that's, that's probably the best explanation for the recent growth that we've seen besides the fact that we have you know, people like Donald Trump retweeting us every now and then. Yes, yes, absolutely. Those are great. And, you know, uh, when I worked for him on the campaign, um, he would talk a few times about some of the articles that he thought were, were hilarious. And that was always great to see. Um, but you started out, I noticed at least, um, talking more about the satire within kind of the church and some of those denominations and then got more into uh, politics. Was there a reason for that uh, type of change or did you just see that uh, there was also a hunger to make fun of politics? Well, there's a little bit of a mixture there. So initially, the site was just about, you know, Christian news satire. So it's dealing with what's happening in the news from a Christian perspective. And so a lot of the jokes, the inside jokes, the church jokes are what the site launched with. And we continue to do those jokes. I think that part of the reason people have this impression that we've become so much more political is because really those types of stories are the ones that get shared the most. Um, we did have, on launch day, we had several political articles on the site. So it's not like it was just church stuff and it became political. Um, but I think it's just kind of naturally what happens, because the church jokes, you know, not not everybody gets, not everybody's in the evangelical Christian community uh, and gets those things, you know, it kind of goes over their head, uh, or they're just not interested in it. So I think the stuff that has the broader appeal is what gets the most attention, and it gives the impression that we're really much more political now and not so much of a church humor website. That's interesting. I actually had that impression that it was more of a of that switch. So I appreciate that clarification. And, you know, some of my favorite mm -hmm. uh, titles are, are some of the things that, um, you know, are making fun of the woke culture and um, and some of this uh, type of stuff. So what has been the reaction to uh, this type of satire when you have people like, you know, for example, Senator Ted Cruz, who's retweeting this, and then you have people who are making fun of him laughing at satire, thinking that he thinks that this is real. I mean, this is almost like an inversion over itself. And, uh, you know, what's really yeah. been the public reaction? Well, I, so I, it, that's a great example of, of something where I think there's some disingenuousness going on here. I think that uh, in the case of when Ted Cruz retweets one of our things and says, uh, I wish this were satire. 
you know, he, he shares our stuff all the time. He's a big fan of Babylon B. Um, and he's a smart guy. So, uh, you know, what, what they're trying to accomplish there, and we see this happen all the time, but what they're trying to accomplish is they want to do two things. They want to make Ted Cruz look like an idiot by suggesting that he doesn't really know what satire is. Uh, and they want to make us look dangerous. This has been a goal of the left for a long time, is to give the impression that we are spreading dangerous disinformation that could misinform people when we're malicious in our intent and all of that stuff. So um, that Ted Cruz's retweet gave people an opportunity to kind of make both of those points. Um, and it just goes to show, I think, you know, what, what they're really trying to accomplish there. Um, and, and, and just this idea that Ted wouldn't know what he, when he says, you know, this is uh, I wish this were satire. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say something like uh, it's funny because it's true? Or there's a grain of truth in every joke. You know, those are common idioms for a reason. Satire exaggerates the truth to make its point. So we look at the truth and we go a little bit beyond it. We take a step beyond it to, to draw out the absurdity of whatever it is that we're ridiculing or, or we're mocking with our irony or, or whatever. So um, it's going to look like the truth. It's going to look a lot like the truth. And people say it all the time. You know, Tucker Carlson just got in trouble for this the other day when he was uh, – uh, mentioning he read an entire B article on his show, and people were giving him a hard time for believing. That it, people were saying, "Oh, Tucker Carlson just cited the Babylon Bee. He didn't cite the Babylon Bee. He presented it as satire." But again, that gives them the opportunity to say that Tucker's an idiot and that we're dangerous. Yeah, and and that was a common theme as well. Uh, the first time I remember when uh, President Trump retweeted a B article, and people uh, didn't allow the president to have a sense of humor, and they didn't. Uh, allow him to retweet satire, and it became this, you know, really uh, important thing that people were talking about and saying, oh, does he really understand that it's satire? And there's a really key element there, I think, that you were just touching on uh, that brings the whole idea of how Snopes has gotten into a war with the Babylon Bee about trying to fact check you guys, and you're a satire site. Um, so talk a little bit about that and the importance of why satire is so effective. So satire, I mean, really, the reason I think it's so effective is because it can get a message through in a way that other forms of communication can't. You know, there's there's clearly a role for rational argumentation and, you know, dealing with the issues in an intellectual way and approaching them in a straightforward argument. But then there's satire, which wraps the whole message in a package of humor, right? And when you do that, it's so easy to deliver it. It's so easy for it to be received. You know, people are going to share satirical stories uh, much more easily than they would something else even if it's on a really controversial or heated topic, just because it's less um, offensive when, it, when it's wrapped in humor. You know, it's less jarring. Uh, people are more likely to kind of laugh at themselves or, or laugh about whatever the issue is. So um, I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He said, humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And I love that. I think it, it perfectly illustrates how effective uh, humor is in the project of what we're doing here. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's really, uh, that's really why I think it's more, more effective than some of these other methods of, you know, trying to get your point across. Yeah. We've seen that with, so uh, much if you want, from, you know, from, sorry, from, I, from the liberal want, left. I mean, we've seen, uh, the comedians, you know, like Jimmy Fallon and, um, you know, all of the Jimmies and, um, you know, the other, the other guys, I'm forgetting his name cause I don't even watch him. It doesn't even matter, but we've seen that, you know, there's so many extreme leftists that will make fun of uh, of all of the conservative people on the right. And I mean, they definitely did this over the past four years of President Trump. And then somehow they're not willing to accept a site like the Babylon Bee that's actually making fun of uh, everyone, actually. And I think that it's fair to say that you guys uh, really take a 
a look at what is the truth of things and your kind of equal opportunity in terms of what you make fun of. And it's more about the issues, not just being uh, specifically right leaning or um, something that is only picking and choosing who you make fun of. So do you see that there's a disparity in how the leftist culture is treating the bee compared to other popularly accepted comedians? Oh, sure. I mean, we just aim at the wrong targets. That's the difference. You know, as, as long as you're aiming at a target that they are comfortable ridiculing, uh, they're fine with it. But yeah, we, we kind of turn it on them. And we do this is what you just mentioned is very true. You know, there's a lot of really good, sharp, effective comedians on the left who are doing satire or parody um, and, and trying to do everything that they can to make the right look as absurd as possible. And really, there's a reason for that. They don't have the argument. So they're falling back on satire uh, and, and ridicule as a way of avoiding actually engaging in the argument. Um, you know, so it, it, it's very uncomfortable for them when it comes back at them um, because then they're being engaged on the old, in the only arena where they actually seem to have an advantage at this point. Um, so, yeah, they, they just don't like the targets that we're aiming at. And it makes them, I think, really squirm and feel uncomfortable when suddenly they're the ones being mocked and, and being made fun of. But to, to your point, it's not just them. We do target the left a lot with our humor because we are conservatives, writing from a conservative perspective. Um, but ultimately, the aim of satire, if you would put it like a nutshell definition of it, is to ridicule bad ideas. And we'll do that wherever we see it, whether we see them on the right, whether we see them on the left. Um, if we see hypocrisy or double standards or something absurd that's happening, uh, we'll attack it regardless of whether or not it's specifically on the left uh, uh, politically. Um, just because we see that as being the project of satire is to kind of expose that stuff and deal with it. And a lot of times we're dealing with our own issues, things that, you know, we believe. Why do we believe it? it are, are we engaging in our own double standards and hypocrisy? You know, we kind of throw that up there and take a look at it and see if we're comfortable with ourselves. Um, so I think there's a lot of self-deprecation in it that's really healthy. Uh, but there is uh, a real need for the right to be able to push back on the left in the way they're so effectively pushing on us. And it, and it is important, I think, the definition I gave a second ago, ridicule bad ideas. Yes. The real point is to ridicule the ideas, not the people. You know, we're not just attacking people to make fun of them, you know, like attacking their appearance or something silly like that, uh, or just insulting their intelligence. Um, it's the ideas themselves that we think are dangerous, and we want to, we want to uh, mock them and ridicule them. And while those words sound really negative, I think it's a moral good to take bad ideas and show them for what they are. And humor and satire are very effective ways of doing that. It's interesting that you say it's a moral good because, um, of course, under our First Amendment and the protections of freedom of speech and, of course, freedom of the press, and you, you, know, you are a, a press uh, site as well, I mean, satire is something that is expressly protected. And so that's a, uh, that's a very key element, I think, that we have to be able to, uh, to mock and ridicule ideas as part of our public debate. And um, how, how much have you seen, so for example, some of the tech oligarchs in the last about minute we have in this segment, um, some of that pushback on the B specifically, where they're not doing uh, the same type of pushback against other types of satire sites? Well, yeah, this all ties back into the fact-checking that you mentioned a moment ago. Um, and I, I, I didn't respond to, you know, with, with Snopes and what's been happening there, you know, the, the, the tech companies are using these fact-checkers uh, as a way of basically setting this system up where, you know, they, they have these quality ratings where they're rating news sources to determine whether or not they're reliable sources. And if you get fact-checked a lot and the fact-checks are rated false, um, then you're not a reliable source of information, and that can have negative implications. Well, in the case, in, in a case of a satire site, we're not making claims to fact. You know, we're, we're just making jokes. 
Uh, but right. for some reason, jokes now have a truth rating. Um, so they're rating them false and then they can use that as an excuse to, you know, limit our reach because, you know, we're, we're putting out false stories. That is so fascinating that now jokes are becoming elements of whether or not they're truthful. So uh, Seth Dillon, uh, stick with me in the break. Uh, we'll be coming right back to more of Just the Truth and talking about satire and the Babylon Bee. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Just the Truth. I'm continuing my conversation with the CEO of the Babylon Beef, Seth Dillon. And we've been talking about the importance of why satire is protected in a free society and why this matters to be able to speak the truth, even if it's not very flattering to power. So, Seth, uh, let's continue on that whole line of thought. Um, how do you see satire as being actually influential? And have you seen as the Babylon Bee is growing a lot of uh, that correlation, I think, with actually influencing people like, for example, a Ted Cruz who uh, retweets you and says that he follows you quite often. Well, I think that sometimes, you know, people see the argument in a, from a different angle when it's brought to them um, in a satirical package. You know, like when we deal with some of these issues, like some of the transgender stuff that's going on, um, you know, we did a piece where we, we made a joke about how a motorcyclist identified as a bicyclist and set a world record. Um, and that one went like crazy viral, got millions of shares. And we got some emails from people who actually said, look, I never saw this issue from this perspective until I read this article. Like, it, it really highlighted the absurdity of what's being done here for me. And that, look at that. that it looks really silly. Just the concept of it is so ridiculous. It's a, it's a, it's a ridiculous Photoshop and everything. Um, but it's really making a point, you know, it's, it's pointing out the absurdity of something in a way that people relate to and where they can see it and kind of go, aha, you know, I get it. I understand now why this is uh, this is so ridiculous. It's outrageous. Um, so, I mean, that, that certainly plays into the effectiveness of it. So and, you know, it, it allows it to go when people share these things. Like I said before, you know, they may not share an article that's like a straight up argument like a philosophical argument or, or like a scientific argument or something that's going to get really into the weeds on like on, on these issues but they will share something that comes across as a joke that's a little more lighthearted and may not offend the people that their friends or family with that uh, may disagree with them so um yeah i think that plays in our, in our um uh to our advantage as well yeah, well, so bring us into kind of the editorial room of the Babylon Bee, which I'm sure is um, a lot more fun than, you know, say some of our friends on the mainstream media. It seems like it would be. Yeah. Uh, how do you guys make editorial decisions of what you're going to write about and how do you decide, you know, what analogy you're going to use and what's the best uh, packing the punch of satire? Some of this is just talent. You can't teach it. I mean, we have super talented people on our team. Um, but there are general like guiding principles for like how to do this stuff. And I, I mentioned before that, you know, satire exaggerates the truth. Well, what we'll do is we'll sit down and we'll look at the headlines, whatever's going on in the news today. And we'll say, you know, like, how do we, how do we, how do we go a step beyond that uh, in the direction that the truth reality is already pointing in? 
uh, in a way that's going to be kind of really funny or jarring or, or really draw out the absurdity here. So we, we deliberately try to do that. And that's kind of that, that actually is the reason why so many of these things end up being prophetic or coming true um, is because just take trying to take imagine going a step beyond reality. Uh, you know, occasionally reality is going to catch up to you. Uh, in some cases, it takes a year, it takes two years for that to happen. Uh, in some cases, it's a matter of minutes before uh, something as crazy as what we tried to write as satire at the time we wrote it uh, actually happens in the real news. So that's kind of funny, and it's, it's validating for our guys. But I, I joke all the time that prophecy is not that hard. It's <laughs> as easy as thinking to yourself, what would be really absurd if it happened? And then just predicting that that will happen because our world really is that crazy at this point where you can kind of just i mean think of one of the stories we did recently was about how uh, black lives matter activists had been nominated for a nobel peace prize and then the movement itself got nominated for the nobel <laughs> peace prize right i mean that was so clearly a joke it was so clearly satirical and it was really that one was really kind of far beyond what we thought was even like realistic uh, at the time we wrote it and that was last summer um, but look, these things, they come true. They actually happen. Uh, people actually try to fulfill these prophecies, as we call them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the be predicting the future has become one of the fav my favorite trends of uh, seeing all of the different things that have come true because our culture is more and more absurd. And so from a truth-based perspective, what kind of commentary do you think that that uh, displays about our society that something so ridiculous that in your news and editorial room, you're thinking, what's the most absurd thing that might happen? And and then you write about it and then it actually becomes true. Oh, well, okay, so I'll quote Chesterton again. I quoted him already once in this interview, but um, back in 1911, he said the world has become too absurd to be satirized. Mm. That was back in 1911. Wow. I mean, math wasn't racist yet, you know? Biological men couldn't compete in sports against women yet. I mean, just think, like, if someone like him were alive today, what he would think. Um, I think it's just a testament to how you know, this is really, honestly, when I when I look at the way that the people talk sometimes about how um, cancel culture and censorship and these things are, are stifling speech and killing comedy, this is one of the ways the left is killing comedy. This is the unintentional way. There's, there's intentional ways. But the unintentional way they're doing it is by making reality so absurd it's impossible to satirize. And mm -hmm. they're not really meaning to do that. It's just they're... What they value, their beliefs, it's so upside down, it's so backwards from what, from what we see as being true and right and good, um, that it really does make it difficult to exaggerate what, what their positions are and the things that they're actually doing. Uh, and so that's it actually, it actually makes the, the job of the comedian extremely, extremely difficult. Um, and then also, of course, there's the other side of it, the intentional side of it, where they're actually trying to limit what you can say, limit what you can joke about. Um, and then in our case, fact-checking fact our jokes as if jokes have a truth value so that they can then leverage the big tech companies to deplatform or demonetize us or whatever they want to do on the back of that. Um, so there's a couple of different ways we feel that the left is really uh, uh, creating challenges for comedians and satirists all over. Yeah, and that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite recent articles about uh, the 17 most uh, racist things you can find in the Dr. Seuss books. And to yeah. me, going through that, it was hilarious because 
I couldn't honestly tell. I was like, you know, this is probably something that tomorrow they're going to be like, yes, this is exactly the reasons that we're canceling Dr. Seuss because, you know, mm. the mustache looks like Hitler or something, you know, completely obviously satirical. But at the same time, that's exactly what they're doing. And so yeah. you're right that that extension is exactly why it's making your job harder. But you do such a great job at it. Uh, but with cancel culture and with talking about, for example, Dr. Seuss, um, that's something that you've personally experienced because you've been part of this uh, this website and because there is an element of truth telling to joking. And so what's been your experience specifically with cancel culture? Yeah, so I had a personal experience. I was invited to go speak at the chapel at my alma mater, uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, um, last year. And this in, in the days leading up to this, it was actually just mere days before I was supposed to speak, uh, a Twitter mob formed online where they had been going through my tweets and looking at things I said. And I, you know, I, I am engaged in wrong think all the time. I openly admit it. I say and believe and feel and think things that I'm not allowed to in today's uh, present climate and culture. So, you know, they're digging through what I'd said and they took this to the administration. They started sending emails. They, they were, you know, tagging people in online posts and saying, how can we, we can't let this guy into our chapel. You know, he has all these outrageous ideas like marriages between a man and a woman and stuff like that. How dare you, um, Seth? So, oh my God. Yeah. I'm horrified. <laughs> yes. <laughs> outrageous. Yes. So, uh, you know, the, the university caved to that mob in a very disappointing decision. And they didn't, what they, what they were trying to do was uh, mollify everybody. That what they want to okay. do is appease the mob, uh, but not fully cancel me. So they wanted to move me out of the chapel, which they had uh, were suggesting was too sacred of, sacred of a place to host me, um, which was <laughs> the complaint of the Twitter mob. And it just became this absurd thing. It's like, look, if I'm not welcome in the chapel, then I don't, I don't feel wel felt welcome on the campus at all. It's just, you know. Uh, why cave to the mob right. like that? So much more offensive to me than the moving out of the chapel situation that was going on uh, was the fact that this institution, a Christian institution, uh, instead of having a backbone and standing up to the mob and saying, look, um, this guy's a, a, a student of our university. Um, he, he employs many students of our university. He's a, a big proponent for free, free speech himself. Uh, we have his back, you know, nothing like that. They didn't have a backbone to stand up to the mob and say, we're going to host him anyway. Um, you know, you guys can uh, protest it if you'd like to. Wait, um, so, so were these actually Christian students at this university that somehow, was that who the cancel culture mob was at this university? I'm sure it was a mixture. I personally knew a couple of the people that were involved. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, the, the word Christian, that, that, that name, I think there's a lot of nominal Christians who adopt that term and don't show any of the values of, of Christianity. Um, so, you know, I don't want to make personal judgments on that level, but there were a lot of people in that Twitter mob, uh, if we want to call it that, that are right. certainly not Christian uh, and have uh, anti-Christian values. I'm not sure what they're doing at Palm Beach Atlantic because it's a Christian university. Um, and I'm not sure what the administrators at that university are doing listening to those people instead of just telling them, you know, look, we're going to host him and you guys can deal with it. Um, you know, the, the university is supposed to be a place, a, a marketplace of ideas, uh, and they should have stood up for that. So I think much more, you know, the, the cancel mobs are going to come. They're going to come and they're going to keep coming. Uh, that what, what's going to change the tide and is actually going to have an impact on things. I'm sorry if I'm banging my desk and shaking my computer here. Uh, <laughs> what's going to change it is if these institutions actually start standing up to yes. the mob and yes. stop caving in and say, look, we stand with this person. We're going to do it anyway. We don't care what you think. 
when is that going to start happening? Because whenever that starts happening is when cancel culture stops becoming effective. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it's really fascinating that the even Christian or so-called Christian institutions and people who claim to be Christian are participating in this type of cancel culture. What do you think that says about the church and how we are adopting some of these uh, types of worldviews and elements of the liberal left, and they're actually infiltrating what should be uh, more of a freedom of speech zone and also free exercise of religion marketplace of debate. Yeah, well, they're buying into this idea. First of all, it's very popular. You know, these are trends. And um, I think that the left has done an amazing job of kind of posturing all of this as being an issue of, uh, you know, everything from, you know, the open border stuff um, to the, the, the racial stuff. It's all uh, couched in the language of compassion compassion, mm. compassion. Um, you're not compassionate unless you're doing something and you're an activist and you're standing up for this stuff. And so I think the church feels pressure uh, to not seem callous. And so in order to seem compassionate, they're jumping on board with this stuff. And I think it's a huge mistake. Yeah. And that really gets into the definitions of what it means to genuinely be a Christian and understand all of this. Well, we're going to take one more break. We'll be right back with Seth Dillon with more of Just the Truth. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Just the Truth, and we're continuing the conversation with Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee, talking about the importance of satire and how uh, the cancel culture has come after the bee, not just from big tech, but also from uh, Seth's own university in trying to cancel him from speaking at chapel, which, Seth, uh, this gets into, I think, a little bit more of a serious question. Um, but, you know, you and I have, of course, talked offline about the importance of the church uh, remaining steadfast about Christians and truth tellers, making sure that we are standing firm and not uh, borrowing from the secular worldview. And where do you see the importance of the church and truth telling, not just from a satire perspective, but from a true biblical worldview perspective moving forward into uh, 2021 and beyond? Well, I think just like, you know, these institutions that are having a hard time standing up to the cancel mob, I think the church needs to grow a backbone and stand up to this kind of like woke, uh, woke PC culture stuff. Um, and, you know, just buying into this whole idea that, um, you know, Jesus was a socialist and, you know, social justice is, is the new gospel. And, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff that's spreading like crazy, like wildfire, and it's becoming very popular. I mean, you've got people like, you know, the New York Times is writing like glowing write-ups on characters like Beth Moore now. And I just feel like, you know, the New York Times should be attacking her, not aligning with her. If they're, if they're aligning with her, then you know there, that there's something that's probably off. Um, and, and so I, I think it's a real um, uh, pivotal moment for the church where uh, people who have the responsibility as preachers and teachers of the Word of God uh, need to really dig in. And, and say, look, this is the biblical worldview. We're not ashamed of it. We're not afraid of it. You know, these are, these are, uh, these are values and, um, and truths, eternal truths that come from God himself. And so, you know, we're going to stand on that, and we have every right to stand on that. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that 
um, I don't think that they're going to face the the backlash that that they really expect if they if they do that. I think they're going to generate actually a lot of support because I think there are tons of Christians who are just hungry for church leaders to stand up and have a backbone uh, and defend a biblical a true biblical worldview. Um, Absolutely, and, and I think one yeah. of the things that makes uh, the beast such a popular site is that even though you're satirizing truth, uh, being willing to address those types of topics and to speak truth, even if it's in um, you know more of a hypothetical or an analogizing way, people recognize mm. that and they're saying, "Wow, you're standing up and you're actually uh, speaking truth." And so, you know, when when you look at college campuses, for example, and you look at uh, these students that are. Uh, taking that term of Christian and they're kind of creating it however they want and they're saying things like, oh, well, Jesus was a socialist or humanitarianism is the great value of the Bible, which is clearly expressly against the text of what the biblical worldview teaches. Uh, What do Mm -hmm. you say is the most important thing for pastors uh, to be able to harness in terms of having that backbone and actually teaching the truth of the Word of God? Well, I don't think pastors have to get um, you know, super political in their messaging. In fact, I think sometimes they make the mistake of getting too political. You know, they, 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 they over-politicize um, these issues. You know, the, the, the Christian message, a lot of the Christian teaching has nothing to do with politics. You know, you kind of take the government out of it. You're not looking at, you're not looking at policy and, and political stuff. You're looking at, you know, how do, how do I love my neighbor? Um, how do I become more Christ-like myself? How do I, um, you know, there are, there are guiding principles and, and behavioral uh, and spiritual truths that you want to be focusing on, I think, much more than the political stuff. But when it comes to the point where you can't ignore it anymore and you have to address it head on, you know, I admire the, the courage of, of pastors who are opening their churches and insisting on, on the fact that they have a right to worship together uh, and assemble in worship. Um, and I admire pastors who are standing up against the woke stuff and, and pushing back on it. Um, but, you know, I don't think that we need to make our churches super political organizations. Um, I think for the most part, you know, um, you can share a Christian message without having to get too much into politics and, and, and loving people is going to be so much more effective than arguing with them anyway. Yeah, and, and speaking the truth in love and what uh, right. loving them genuinely means. And that's a really key point because a lot of people also only look at the Bible and say, okay, well, that's just how to be saved. And then once I'm saved, I can go and live my life however I want. And they don't take the entirety of the word of God, which, I mean, how to become saved is very, very simple and concise uh, in scripture. Mm-hmm. It's uh, recognizing that Jesus is Lord and Savior and accepting that truth, recognizing and acknowledging that, and that uh, he came and died and rose again, and that he is uh, the Savior. And so then after that, we can move forward in recognizing uh, how to live rightly and live righteously. But I think this conflation of uh, how much emphasis is on the political environment um, is really telling that all we're talking about today is politics, and we're not actually talking about truth. And so what you're doing with the Babylon Bee, I think, is really incredibly important, Seth. And you guys also have a podcast that you uh, address a lot of these issues. Um, Is that a little more satirical, or how do you approach that, and uh, where can people find that? Yeah, so a number of places. It's on our website and our main navigation. You can also download the Babylon Bee app, whether if you're on an iPhone or Android device. We have a mobile app. You can listen to it on there. Um, but, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the podcast is very uh, just kind of relaxed, conversational. The guys that are behind the bee, our creative director, Ethan Nicole, and our editor-in-chief, Kyle Mann, kind of banter back and forth. They have guests on occasionally. 
Um, we run through like hate mail that people send us and stuff like that. So it's fun and funny, um, but we're not doing like dry satirical reads of the news back there. So it's kind of like a behind the scenes pulling back the curtain look at who these guys are and how they come up with their ideas and interacting a little bit with some of the feedback and, and, and commentary that we get. That's awesome. And so uh, how much hate mail do you actually get? I'm sure quite a bit with the Babylon Bee. <laughs> a lot. You know, we get hate mail. Okay. Are you a cat person or a dog person? A dog, obviously. Yes. Okay. <laughs> obviously. Uh, <laughs> cat people get mad at us when we make, okay. So we, we did an article recently about, uh, you know, how, how cats are like the devil or something. I don't know. It was just silly and, and ridiculous. And uh, Which is and true though. People... There's an element of truth to that. Let's all acknowledge it because yeah. Cats have that evil look. So see, you're right. There's the element look. of truth. I'm going to fact check you right on air. <laughs> they have an evil look and evil behavioral characteristics. But anyway, um, uh, cat people got so mad at us and they were and they were ripping into us about how we're going to inspire violence against animals and stuff oh like that. Gosh. So really, I mean, when you're doing satire, every single piece that you write is going to have somebody angry because someone's the target of it. So whoever, everyone is always fine with it right up until there it is. Yeah, is your cat actually safe? That is um, funny. Is your cat actually it, Satan? Nine things to look for. That's the headline. <laughs> we got hate funny. mail. I think that's pretty lighthearted and pretty obviously lighthearted. But yeah, you know, everybody's fine with satire until it pokes at them a little bit. It gets a little bit personal, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think that's really, uh, I think that's a challenge for people. And every now and then we'll, we'll poke back at them a little when they get really irritated by something. We've actually written some satirical pieces about how uh, you know, like an op-ed from someone who says, I usually like satire, but this time you went too far. You know, that person, we make fun of them a little bit with satire, and then we'll sometimes send that article to these people as they're doing this to us uh, and have a little bit of fun with them. Do so they typically write respond. back, or <laughs> do you not get uh, a response? Sometimes they're like, oh, you know, touche, you got me. Uh, and other times they just get really angry and start cursing. So nice. you never know. <laughs> nice. Well, Seth Dillon, <laughs> CEO of the Babylon Bee, the importance of satire. Thank you so much for coming on Just the Truth. And keep speaking truth. Keep uh, making these lighthearted jokes. I know I enjoy the bee. It's my go-to uh, source in the morning to just have a great laugh and to say, you know what? This is really truth and how we can continue speaking that truth into culture. So thanks so much for joining me here on Just the Truth. Thank you. You keep speaking the truth, too. But now everyone's going to think that you think satire is real because you just said it's right? true. I know. Yeah. So now you're going to have to overly satire, uh, satirize me <laughs> uh, when we come back. All right. We'll be right back with the Public Square on Just the Truth. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Public Square, I want to say thank you for making this a great first week here on Just the Truth. It's Friday, yay! We've accomplished everything this week. So we've received so many comments from you saying that you're enjoying the show and you're asking really important questions. And so this is just a sampling of, of what viewers are saying. Brave and bold, continue speaking just the truth. I love your new show because you are showing people how to live as new creations under Jesus. Please be encouraged in what you do. I've leveraged your counsel and wisdom to many and continue to pray for you. Your podcast is fantastic. Thank you. 
We've also gotten questions from people who are asking if they have the correct email address or how to ask us a question. So if you have a question or want to write into the show, email us at justthetruth@americasvoice.news. We do see you. So getting to our questions tonight, and thank you so much for writing in. Francisco asks, if the Democrats say that, that the affidavits are false, why don't Republicans force Democrats to arrest the people that put out the affidavits? Because if they did, they would have to actually investigate the election. Why are the girls in Georgia that counted the ballots still not in jail? Don't give up. Well, this question gets into a separation of powers issue. Republicans, as a general group, have no power to make criminal arrests or to prosecute or to enforce the law. That has to come from a legitimate governmental authority. A lot of the questions and proposed solutions that I see on social media or in discussions often arrive at solutions that in theory may sound good, but in practical terms aren't recognizing that only government has those limited government powers and there is a separation of those specific delegations of powers. So I understand completely, believe me, I share with you the frustration that a lot of my fellow Americans share about the 2020 election and the clear and obvious violations of the state law that did occur. But our solutions have to be forward-thinking, constitutionally proficient, and probably rest in making sure that the state legislatures recognize their constitutional authority and ensure election integrity. Mia asks, the discussion about HR1 and the horrible changes that Democrats want for our elections has prompted me to do a lot of reading lately. I looked up the elections clause online and found what you mentioned about the state setting their own election rules for time, place, and manner, etc. The other thing I saw, though, is something that mentioned Congress being able to change or override those state laws. Is this true? This is an excellent example of why we have to take the entire Constitution together in context and also pay attention to the precise language of each clause. Remember, the Constitution is just a delegation of specific limited powers to various government authorities. So we have to look at the text to figure out what power is granted to what designated government actor. So the section that you're referring to is in Article 1, Section 4. Congress does have the authority to modify the rules, but only in the elections of Congress members, not over any other elections, specifically not the president, not the state and local elections. So for example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was constitutional, but those only apply to federal elections of Congress members, not to state and local elections. Article 2, Section 1.2 specifically and solely vests the authority with the state legislatures to establish election law for the manner of selecting electoral college delegates. Congress has absolutely nothing to do with the selection of delegates except to count them. So this is why the solution that was advocated for by many on the right in the past election was for then uh, Vice President Mike Pence to simply reject the Biden delegates and count the Trump delegates. But that was an unconstitutional solution. The vice president, whoever the sitting vice president is, does not have the discretion to choose which slate of delegates cast votes from a particular slate. But what I advocated for was to pose a question back to the state legislatures, the constitutionally appointed authority that we just read in the Constitution, uh, with the power to determine what delegates are sent from their states. 
And we should have demanded that the states clarify which slate of delegates was selected in the manner that the state legislature had established by their own law. The precedent of this type of action and solution from Congress would have been fully consistent with the constitutional language and also with the original intent of the Constitution, that the state legislatures alone have the authority to establish election law and the selection of delegates when we're talking about the presidential election. Connie asks, my question is this, if an accepted authority like SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, or by a joint decision of both houses of Congress established that election fraud could be proven, what would happen? Can the election be reversed? This is another great question, and as you can see, I'm still getting a ton of questions about election integrity. On the podcast this week, I addressed this for a full hour discussion, and I plan to do more. So you can listen anywhere, anytime, and wherever you stream podcasts, and also at justthenews.com. And now we're going to Just the Word. First Peter 3 says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what's right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at thomasmoresociety.org. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.